Amen. Let me say this. Um, I was standing over there, and I'll say it as I heard it. The Lord, sometimes the Lord speaks to us in slang because we understand it in slang. But that shouldn't surprise us because he speaks Spanish. He speaks Japanese. He speaks all the African dialects and the Asian dialects. And so sometimes slang is just another vernacular of our own. And uh, so he, I was, we were just worshiping. And the Lord, I just heard the Lord say, make sure he's not your side hustle. Make sure the Lord is not your side hustle. And what that means is, yeah, you're a Christian. Yeah, you're spirit-filled. But you're not sold out. You've been churched. You, you know the kingdom's doctrines. But it's not really what you define your life with. Though you might be faithful. And I think... As I can ponder what the Lord ministered to me, don't let Jesus be your side hustle. I think one of the evidences that he is your side hustle is that you become a church snob. Industrialized nations have so much food available to them, we become food snobs. We can afford to be persnickety because food's available in every corner. And there's a dollar menu that if this dollar menu didn't get it right, I'll just drive down the road 100 yards and get another dollar menu. Burger King, McDonald's, go to Walmart. Third world people in the developing nations can't afford to be food snobs. They're so hungry, they'll just eat anything. So one of the evidences that you have made or allowed Jesus Christ to become your side hustle is that you're just kind of a church snob in that you can't really press into worship unless it's your flavor. You can't really receive from the preacher unless he's your flavor. You can't really get with the, the family of God unless they're your flavor. And if any of that describes you, then the Lord is talking to you. And I would really encourage you to repent and get right with God. When Jesus is your life and not the side hustle, you can fellowship with any saint that loves God and have wonderful conversations about doctrine. You can find the presence of God with a pipe organ or a cappella. You can find it with music that's your style and with bush music on the backside of Oogala Boogala running off a generator. When Jesus is your all in all, it's not hard to find his presence among the Methodists, the Presbyterians, even the Catholics. It's not hard to find him among the blacks, the whites, the yellows, or whatever color you don't maybe like. But you can tell Jesus has been relegated to your, your hustle, your side dish when everything has to be just so and you still struggle to enjoy where he has you. And I would say you're backslidden. That's, now that's my interpretation. I would say you probably are not right with God because you're arrogant. You're prideful and you're a snob. You have to have everything just so. 
But the problem is that does make you like a spiritual Goldilocks. This is too hot. This is too cold. This is too soft. This is too hard. You're just going to keep looking your whole life to find something that's just right and suits you just so. But the problem is everywhere you go, you're the miserable problem. And you look around you and everybody else is just enjoying life. Everybody's enjoying the fellowship of the saints. Everybody's enjoying the Holy Ghost and the Word. And it doesn't really matter because God's among them. And so that's the word of the Lord I heard over there. Make sure Jesus is not your side hustle. And when he is your all in all, you're not hard to please because you're full of him. So whoever that's for, maybe that's for all of us. It's worth judging. I'm judging myself thinking, do I have to have it just so? Do I have to have the music just so? Do I have to have the songs just so to press in? Can I worship God among the Baptists? Can I find God among the Church of Christ? Can I find God around the world among different congregations that are different? I think I can. I'm pretty sure I have. Monday, I get to drive down to Alabama with two carloads of Baptists. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to get them all saved. No. They're great men and they're dear brothers in the Lord. I actually have better fellowship with them than I do a lot of spirit-filled men. So judge yourself and make sure that is not you. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. I want to talk about the spirit of abandonment and betrayal. It's certainly moving in the earth. It's one of the demons we're going to have to contend with. It likes to make divorces happen. It likes to uh, separate chief friends. It likes to get you to walk away from God. Uh, Dr. Barclay mentioned it at the conference. He had a whole sermon on it one night, so it's a little fresh on my heart. Uh, it'll come upon every one of you to try to get you out of, the, out of your place. We talked a little bit about it Sunday night, about Christians being light bulbs who the Lord has screwed in where he sees fit, but some Christians allow themselves to be unscrewed and they're just loosely there. So, you know, with a loose light bulb, sometimes it's bright and sometimes it's dim. Sometimes it, you can trust it. And if you bump it just right, it goes out. We should not be that finicky. Nobody wants a bulb you can't trust. Nobody wants their kitchen to turn into a disco and just flicker. You get irritated, you'll go thump it, you'll tighten it, or you'll just take it out and throw it away. May none of us be a flickering bulb for Jesus, lest something get a hold of us and pitch us into the rubbish bin. This spirit of abandonment and betrayal will get you to um, uh, override what should be the fruit of faithfulness. Faithfulness keeps you faithful to your boss, to your marriage, to your parents, faithful to wherever God has called you, a faithful man who can find, because apparently this spirit of betrayal and abandonment and departure has been working in the earth a long time. I remember years ago uh, when I served Pastor Darren, and I was kind of coming up through the ranks of his church. You have to be proven everywhere you go. Even though I was faithful to Pastor Vaughn, I landed at Pastor Darren's church. I got to start all over. Even though Pastor Darren knew Pastor Vaughn, Pastor Darren's wife, Miss Shelley, was the secretary at the church in Nashville that Pastor Vaughn was submitted to. And so she knew Pastor Vaughn and Miss Mary very well. Miss Shelley did. So Pastor Darren did. So he knows I'm come from good pedigree, but he still has to prove me, which means he doesn't care what I know, what, how I've been used. He doesn't care what ministry I've done. That doesn't qualify me for anything because I still have to be proven faithful because a faithful man who can find. Plus, he doesn't know how I showed up. Why are you here? 
Did Pastor Vaughn kick you out? Are you running from somebody? Are you high as a kite? Or are you come here seeking Jesus and you're ready to plug in? So I'm working my way up, and it does take work because you must prove yourself. And there was a, a couple other young men, a little bit older than me, so I was in my mid-20s, so these men were in their early 30s, and they were being trained by Pastor Darren to do ministry as well. Both married. One uh, was about to have a baby. The other didn't have any kids yet. And I remember one summer, all of a sudden, I start really disagreeing with Pastor Darren on a lot of stuff that I never really cared about before. And it starts bugging me a little bit, and I know how to be submitted, and I know how to look past stuff. And Pastor Darren was way different than Pastor Vaughn, and Pastor Vaughn was bigger than life to me. Pastor Darren is not as experienced, so he's not as big as life to me, but I'd already worked that out. I didn't really care. But all of a sudden, um, I start having all these thoughts about maybe I don't belong here. You know, maybe, I could, maybe there's a better church in this area, and I've wasted a year or two here. These thoughts start to come to me. And, but the Lord hasn't spoken to me. I know the difference between my dumb mind and the Holy Spirit. I've been trained up well enough to know that. I know a vain imagination from the leading of God. Furthermore, I've been taught checks and balances so that even if I do think it's God, I'm going to go submit it. And honestly, I was a little lazy. I didn't want to submit it, so I'm just going to sit it out. I'm just going to stay because it's easier than you know, being um, like Pastor Vaughn called a teenage brat that sneaks out the back door to go search for a place I've, he's not spoken to me about. I have mentioned in times past, we're not Abraham. We don't leave Ur the Chaldees in search of a place the Lord will show me when I get there. That's not how God works in this day and age. That's crazy talk. But a lot of Christians who don't know the Bible from their elbow will invoke Abraham. Like, Well, I'll just, God's got me on a journey. No, the devil does because you're a moron. <laughs> journey, what are you, a hobbit? Adventure of the Rings. Did you bring Gollum with you? If not, that guy's going to betray you. I've seen the movie once. That's all you ever need to watch it. You guys hear me? If you're a disciple of mine, you only need to waste 18 hours of your life once on those six absurd movies. I don't care if they're full of Christian allegory. Midgets and trolls and sorcerers and gay wizards. They only need 18 year, hours of your life, not 18 years, all right? So all of a sudden, because I wasn't privy to a lot, I hadn't earned the right to be, Pastor Darren has a Sunday night service, and he calls up the couple that I was friends with that I'd sat by every service, and he lays hands on them, and he says, it's time to release you into the ministry. And I knew they'd been chomping up the bit. They felt like they were called to do some, some work with uh, Mark Brzee's ministry, and they felt like they were called to go to a place overseas as missionaries. And so I thought, well, this is it. Praise the Lord. They're going to go. Hallelujah. I didn't see this coming. And then when I noted Pastor Darren say, I release you to do what's in your heart. Those were two terms that I had been taught were not good terms. Not I send you for what God has called you to do. I release you to do what's in your heart. When each man does that which is right in his own eyes, it's trouble. That's the time of the judges, the lawless time. And so it was in that moment I had this instant understanding or epiphany that Pastor Darren was having to release this couple because they were becoming a burden to him. And 
I, I understood in that moment, I, I would assume by the Spirit of God, it's been 20 years ago or so, that they no longer wanted to be discipled by him. They no longer wanted to be tutored by him. They no longer wanted to submit to him. And the image I got was of a cat that I think we've all held a cat, hopefully just once. I mean, the only thing worse than 18 hours of Lord of the Rings is holding a cat once. Because holding a cat once is like having to endure 18 hours of three Hobbit movies and three Lord of the Rings movies. Man, stick with me. I'll give you tips for life. I'll watch what you want and have whatever you want as a pet. But we've all held a cat, and that cat all of a sudden decides, I don't want to be held. And then what happens? It lets you know real quick. There's no nice asking. There's no wiggling. It will go from purring to claws, and it, it'll get still. And it just right there. And you know, okay, I got to get you off of me because if I'm allergic, you're going to cause little whelps under my skin. I'm going to break out with the hives and you have to get almost unpry it. Hopefully you're not wearing an Argyle sweater or something because you just snagged it and you got to get rid of it because it doesn't want to be held. And the longer you hold it, the more dangerous it becomes. It'll bite you. It'll hiss at you. And just, just two minutes ago, it was happy to be held and purred. That's how finicky some believers are. So that was what I was experiencing when Pastor Darren laid hands on my friends and said, it's, the time has come. I release you to do what's in your heart. And so I, people were rejoicing. I began to rejoice until my training kicked in and I realized released to do what's in your heart. Those are two bad terms. It was very subtle. It was brilliant of Pastor Darren to tactfully deal with it that way because nobody was the wise of what was going on behind the scenes. And I wasn't until I had a conversation with him later. So they were gone within like a month, just gone, moved to Tulsa, joined a group of believers out there and what have you. Hadn't heard from them personally in a couple years. And so I asked Pastor Darren later, I said, that wasn't the will of God, was it? He said, absolutely not. You have no idea how much hell they've made, been to me in private the last couple months. He said, it's gotten worse. He said, they decided they no longer wanted to be here. And I said, well, you know, Pastor, to be honest with you, the last couple months, I've really struggled to stay here too. He said, yeah, I know it. I could see their leave spirit getting off on you. I could see that spirit rubbing on you. And he said, I just pray that you'd hear from God and be obedient. Well, I'm glad it did because being connected with Pastor Darren has set everything up for that, what we do tonight uh, and today. Uh, anyway, so there's this, this spirit that convinces people to leave or betray their God or assigned station in life. I don't use the word station of life like you might socioeconomically or uh, maybe politically, by station life, where God has assigned you. We discussed it uh, Sunday that we, we admit not every Christian is going to finish their race. And if not every Christian finishes their race, then not every Christian gets a full reward. We should first say not every Christian is going to discover their race. And even if they, those that do discover their race, 
how many will even start to run? And of those that start to run, how many completed? How many will hear, well done? How many will run the race to the end? And so there is a spirit. There's many, many uh, voices in the earth that would try to trip us up one way or another. If they can't get you to fall into sin and backslide, they'll get you to leave where you're called to be. And that is a spirit of abandonment or betrayal. And it'll come to every one of us to try to get us out of our marriage, either through adultery to begin with, or you'll just, there's a spirit that will rest upon you and you'll look at your wife or your husband who you once thought was the most beautiful or the most handsome thing ever, and you'll find them disgusting to look at. And that's not you. It's a demon. And you have to be able to recognize it and say, that thing is perverting my vision. And the spirit also, that spirit has the ability to to get you to look at somebody else and find them the most attractive, desirable, sensual, sexual, hunk of hunk of burning love you've ever seen. And that's a demon. And you got to be wise to these things because they don't come in with red hooves and pitchforks and horns. They come in just passing through your mind and you wake up thinking weird that isn't biblical, which is why you should know the Bible to be able to cast down thoughts and say, well, that's not biblical. Shut up, devil. You go to hell. That's the best-looking man I've ever seen. That's why I married him. You shut up here. That's the best-looking woman. I, I saw two guys checking my wife out the other day. Shut up, devil. The same spirit that can make a man lust after a man and think he's desirable can come upon you and make your wife or husband look ugly. Furthermore, we don't walk by sight. Amen. So we got to be able to recognize when, when the spirit of departure or betrayal is trying to come upon us because it'll ruin your life. And that's why you have to recognize where you're called, to whom you're called, who your covenant's with, till death do you part. And then you say, you see that devil? Write that in your book. I'm called to this woman of mine. I'm called to this man of mine. You see that devil? I'm called to this church or I'm called to that church. And you know, the devil doesn't, I mean, the, the, the Lord doesn't change his mind every six months. The Lord is not behind what Pastor Vaughn used to call the, the ministry of the traveling Christian. Dr. Dufresne used to call them church tramps. And they six months at this church and six months at that church and six months at this church and they just tramp around like a hobo. It's not the will of God. Those Christians never put down roots, and therefore they never bear fruit. And we've been seeing from the gospel parables that if you don't bear fruit, you burn. That's the message over and over again. A quarter of the Lord's parables deal with botany, and a lot of those botanical parables say if you don't bear fruit, you get broken off, cut down, and you get gathered and burned. I don't don't think that means the bonfire in heaven. I don't think the implication, the inference, or the, the, the suggestion there is there's going to be this beautiful bonfire in heaven. And if you're a fruitless Christian here, don't worry. We'll get you in the back door. No. So you're in Genesis chapter 9. Did I say that? Genesis chapter 9. I want to talk about a couple of examples tonight of those that yielded to the spirit of departure or betrayal. And let's see what, how it went for them. Like I said, this is a serious message. Maybe you can find some encouragement in it. Maybe some of you are under this. Uh, One of the elders reminded me, I came back from Pastor Kerry's conference back in the beginning of August, and one of the things I prophesied about was pruning. 
And I always think, ah, yeah, prune line. Let's prune and streamline some departments and prune some spending. And, and I always forget it also means pruning people, like off the body. I forget how the thing works across the board and not just where I'm excited to prune, which is stream. I like streamlining things. I don't like losing people. But I came back and said it and prophesied it, and it's happened so far. Strong gusts of wind break branches off all the time. You don't even have to have a demon involved. It can just be a strong wind of the earth, and you just blow away. And one day you swim out too far, and the ship is moving, and you can't swim back. It's gone. You don't even know which direction on the horizon it is. And that's not a good place to be. So let's look at the first example of betrayal in the Bible. Genesis chapter 9. We have here the story of Noah's ark. So let's just build it real quick. The story, not the ark. That'd take a long time. Let's build the story real quick. We know the story. We've known it since we were six. God calls Noah, build me an ark. I'm going to flood the earth. And he took his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and he builds an ark. Probably 50, 60, or 70 years in the building. And they go into the ark. Now, it's pretty cool because they help their dad with their dad's vision. They build. That's all they do for 60 or so years. And it blesses them. And it gives their marriage purpose. And it benefits their marriage because they get to be saved by this vision. So they endure the storm. They're the only 10 people on the planet. And they got a lot of pets. And they got... <laughs> I mean, it's, folks like to cruise. It's a big holiday thing. They had like a year-long cruise. They were benefiting. You'd think Sham, Ham, and Japheth were thankful, and I'm sure they were, but they come off the boat, and now they get to rebuild life. They get to repopulate the earth. So begin in verse 18. And the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. It's interesting. We come off the boat, and the first thing we say is, Ham is the father of Canaan. Now, Canaan was the youngest of the four sons, but it lets us know Ham is the father of Canaan, okay? Yeah, sure. Why are we saying that already? These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husbandman, that is, a farmer, and he planted a vineyard. And he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. Just as a side note, if agriculture has been wiped out, he had to plant a vineyard. Him becoming a vine keeper and getting drunk is probably about seven or eight years. And we just kind of skip over it like he walks off the boat and gets drunk. <laughs> this is very typical of the book of Genesis. You have huge gaps of time that get jumped between verses. All right. To even have some wine takes at least half a year to make. Once you get a good vintage going, which takes several years from a seed you plant that produces a vine, etc. He drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan. Here we mention that again. Why don't you mention the other three sons? Ham, the father of Canaan. It's kind of like every time they mention Judas in the Gospels, they always call him Judas, who would betray him. Judas Iscariot is never mentioned without being called a traitor. 
It's almost like all the gospel authors say, we just want to make sure you know that we know that he was a traitor and we never liked the guy. <laughs> we saw it. We saw it. He was a traitor from the beginning. Nobody liked that guy. <laughs> and Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went out and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. This is betrayal. Now the Bible makes a point that seeing your father's nakedness and not being ashamed of it, seeing in a sense your spiritual father's shortcoming and not rectifying it, but rather kind of boasting in it, was a, an egregious betrayal. Here was his dad who just saved him and let his marriage prosper and the fact that we have four sons, it keeps mentioning Ham, excuse me, Canaan, lets us know this drunken incident happens probably at least maybe 15 or 20 years after they come off the boat because now there were no sons that came off the boat of Ham. Now we have at least four sons. Canaan's the youngest. He's the one that keeps getting mentioned. We've had a couple grandkids by now. How long did it take for Ham to forget all that Noah's vision had done for him? How long? Are we, have we so soon forgotten? We just watched civilization drown. Isn't it a reminder that there's bones everywhere still? You know, there's nobody here but us. When once there were civilizations and cities, you, do you forget? Look, there's the boat. We're still picking it apart for firewood. How have you forgotten what the man of God did? The vision he had, you got to be a part of it. It blessed your marriage, gave you something to do, and gave you life. So a couple years later, he has no problem rejoicing or boasting in folly, his, his own dad's folly. And so let me read some things I wrote down. Ham helped build the ark. Ham was saved by Noah's vision and project. Ham's wife bore children after the flood. Ham prospered because of Noah, and then he betrays Noah. Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. Ham's betrayal cursed his son. Now that's a strong word. First betrayal in the Bible cost the children. We don't often think that. We don't often think how our betrayal or our departure or our withdrawal will hurt our children. But Noah sits up. How he knew what had happened, maybe by the word of the Lord, because the Bible calls Noah a prophet. Maybe he knew by the word of the Lord. But he sits up, and he knows what's happened. His own son looked at his nakedness, rejoiced in it, went and told the brothers, Ha ha, you see the old man? And the first thing he says is, I curse his youngest son. Cursed be Canaan. Now, that alone ought to keep us in prayer to make sure, especially as dads, you don't get your family out of the will of God. Because when you do, everybody 
from the locomotive back to your caboose suffers. You're the dad, you're the locomotive. And if you switch lanes or lines when you're not supposed to, you take your whole family, wife, children, and grandchildren that direction. That is why, ladies, you be very careful whose locomotive you connect your life with. You take your time, even if it's five years or ten years longer than you want to wait, because the last thing you want to do is hurry up, get married, and be divorced in three, and split your custody between a weirdo and his new floozy wife, and you're struggling to serve God. Ham's departure and betrayal cost him Canaan. Now, this prophecy right here, this prognostication, this curse, is the whole reason Israel got to inherit Canaan later. Because of this sin, Jacob had inheritance rights to everywhere Canaan was. Because he goes on to say, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. This sets up Israel taking the promised land, because that's Canaan. You go ahead and sin, and you might really curse a long lineage unless they repent and get right with God. So there's example number one of yielding to the spirit of departure. And betrayal. We may tie that into the, the word the Lord gave me there at worship. When Jesus is your side hustle, you'll be way more susceptible to departure and betrayal because you're not committed. When we were at the conference, Dr. Barclay asked a couple pastors to get up on the platform one at a time. He was going to interview us for our churches concerning maybe the success of our ministry of help, so the success of our church. So, uh, he had somebody go first, and Pastor Jeremy, then he called me up there, and so he asked, what's, what's the secret to your success? And I said, honestly, staying committed to you, because everybody had, this, had good answers, and there's no sense repeating them, so you want to present something that nobody said yet to help the people that he's asking for. He's not asking for my sake. He's asking for other people's sake. So I said, honestly, Pastor, when the Lord said you and connected me to you, that meant everything I need and everything this church is going to need is going to come through you. Otherwise, you'd have connected me to somebody else. So I said, sir, honestly, I think our success is obviously assumed. Not, it's Jesus. It's doing the word. But it's being connected to who you're supposed to be connected to and not withdrawing or retreating just because you disagree, just because you don't like something. That's not faithfulness. That's fickleness. Fickleness is not a fruit of the Spirit. It's the fruit of middle school hormones. It's petty and pathetic. <laughs> so I said, honestly, sir, just being committed to you. Almost 15 years now. And the longer we go, the more we see the fruit of it. The longer I'm with my pastor, the more I see folks come and go. And I see folks detach. And the next thing you know, you hear a story. I said, how's brother so-and-so? I hadn't seen him in a while. Well, I just preached for him. Brother, they are weird. I said, what? What? Yeah, they think they're an apostle now. What? They're not even a pastor. Well, don't tell them that. When did this happen? When they left Dr. Barclay? Not because Dr. Barclay is great, but because they were called to Dr. Barclay. That's just my testimony. You guys aren't called to him, so you got to apply it whether you're called to Pastor Caleb or if you're visiting whoever you're called to. Don't be a floozy. Some folks want to flirt with Jesus. They don't want to commit to him. I got a friend right now. She, she's uh, having spend the night parties with her boyfriend. 
my wife called her out on it. And I told my wife, if I didn't, I thought it. Why would that guy ever marry her? Why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? Seeker churches are built upon free milk. Not just the fornication that takes place there, but it does. But no commitment, but you come and you know, give me chump change and maybe serve once a year, and I, I feel like I, I'm doing a good thing for Jesus. Don't be that way. Be committed. Don't let Jesus be your side hustle. Make sure he is your all in all, and he defines everything in your life. Second Samuel chapter 15. Let's look at the second example of betrayal and departure or abandonment. We're using all these terms synonymously, the spirit of divorce, the spirit of departure, the spirit of abandonment, spirit of quit. It's a spirit. It comes and it will talk to you and try to talk you out of where you're called to be. I was talking to Miss Hannah about this today. You guys know she's our secretary. She's coming up on having been with us for five years now. And so I told her, she said, what are you going to minister on tonight, Pastor? I said, I really think I'm going to talk about the spirit of abandonment because it came up during prayer today. She said, you know, that thing's tried to talk to me twice lately. She said, just last year. Now, you would ever think that the church secretary who makes her living working for me, she's got the best boss in the world. <laughs> we have fun. I pay her pretty good. She gets to work in the church and do ministry for a living. She got it pretty made. I'm, not, I'm a much easier boss than I am a pastor. I really am. I'm pretty laid back. They all fear Miss Manda. They do not want to betray Miss Manda or fail her because Miss Manda does not suffer failure well. She just does it. She's just very cut, straight laced. Come to my office. We'll cut up for 30 minutes before I deal with you on something. This is how I am. But it was interesting to hear that she has to resist the spirit of abandonment even though I pay her. But I'm proud of her because she said, well, it was just last year. She said, I had to tell the devil, devil, are you stupid? I just dealt with you on this a year ago. So I'm like, how often do you deal with this? Am I that bad of a boss? No, it's the enemy. I'm resolved. She said, I feel like Peter. Where else will I go? This is where I'm called. And she sorts it out and everything smooths over. You'll find that spirit's talking to you when you find something to nitpick everywhere you look. I would hate to be you because that's miserable. But I ever wonder when you're in that funk and that demon's ministering to you and you're yielding to it, do you ever turn the mirror on yourself? Because when you're listening to that spirit, you won't ever nitpick yourself like you will the church you're called to or the spouse you're married to. That's how you know it's a demon because it makes you a hypocrite. Do you ever nitpick you the way you nitpick me? Do you ever nitpick your, you like you nitpick your spouse? How come you're the golden child all of a sudden? Well, to be falsely humble, you'll say, well, I, I know I'm not perfect. Okay, tell me how you're not. Because I know you want to tell me how I'm not perfect, but let's hear it from you first. How are you not perfect? And then I can guarantee you the things you think I'm doing wrong are not the things the Lord is dealing with me about. So this is how that demon works. It starts to cause you to nitpick. Second Samuel chapter 15 is our second example. This is the story of Absalom. This is David's handsome, suave son. And 2 Samuel chapter 15, 
He murdered his, bro- his half-brother for raping his sister. Like I said, David, great worshiper, great strategist, great king, horrible dad. When one of your kids rapes another one of your kids and then gets murdered by another one of your kids, you got issues. David was a horrible, horrible dad. He is not a role model father. So even after Absalom has to run for his life for killing his brother, for raping his sister, uh, he goes and lives for a while, and then David, Joab finally talks David into reconciling his son, and uh, then he ignores his son even though he's living in Jerusalem. So Absalom gets a little upset. David just doesn't know how to handle kids. He can train soldiers. He can't discipline babies. You've got to make sure you're balanced across the board. Why kill the Philistines and lose your kids? Why build a temple and lose your son? Amen. So verse 15, chapter 15, verse 1, it came to pass after this that Absalom prepared him chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. He's the king's kid. Who's going to question him anyway? And Absalom rose up early and stood beside the way of the gators, the road into the city. And it was so that when any man that had a controversy came to the king for judgment, then Absalom called unto him and said, of what city art thou? And he said, uh, thy servant is one of the tribes of Israel. And Absalom said unto him, see, your matters are good and right. But there is no man deputized of the king to hear thee. Absalom said, Moreover, O that I were made judge in the land, that every man which hath a suit or cause might come unto me, and I would do them justice. And it was so that when any man came nigh to him to do him obeisance, he put forth his hand and took him and kissed him. And of this matter did Absalom to all Israel that came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And it came to pass after four years, King James says 40, other manuscripts say four. We know it's not 40 years because David only reigned for 40 years. It is a clerical error in some of the older manuscripts from which the King James was taken. And that gets into a whole other subject on how we got our Bible, but we don't discuss it tonight. Not enough time. Four years is how long it took Absalom to politic and betray his dad. You don't desert overnight. And you can't talk people into deserting with you overnight because their hearts are set. And so was yours at one point. And so if your heart is rooted, you have to begin to lose one little root tendril at a time. To where, like if anyone of you have ever dug up a tree that's pretty rooted, you, you kind of start digging around it and you start attacking the roots. Like you start pulling on it, pushing on it, and then you kind of make way and you look down and realize, oh, there's a, there's a big root. That's a strong root. So then you start hacking on it till you get that root cut. And there's always four or five, six major roots that have to be hacked at before you can pull that tree up. You don't uproot a tree overnight. Or instantly. You can do it in an hour. Dynamite helps. (laughs) But for the sake of our analogy, my point is your heart isn't stolen and you're not talked into desertion instantly. It comes through a thought you fail to recognize or you fail to cast down or when you recognize you don't cast it down and it begins to talk you out of who you're called to. I can remember some of the thoughts with Pastor Darren 20 years ago. Man, you can do better than this. What is he thinking? Pastor Vaughn wouldn't preach like that. Why is, Pat, why is he letting this person uh, do praise and worship? Man, isn't there another Rama church in Oak Ridge now? Why don't we go try that? Except those are all thoughts, and none of them were the Spirit of God. 
But it was the same vibe coming off of my friend talking to me differently because I'm a different person and my weaknesses rest other places. I have no ambition to go to Tulsa to go to Bible school and become a missionary somewhere in Oogala Boogala. I'm just looking for the church I'm called to. So the thing adjusts its tactic for my logic. Demons are way smarter than us. They've studied us for thousands of years, and they've studied the church for 2,000 years. So we are not ignorant of their devices. you got to be a little smarter than the average bear, boo-boo. You have to be very, very shrewd and cast down vain imaginations. With Absalom, he was the king's son. He owed everything he had to his father, the king. The prosperity, the wealth, the fact that there were 50 men that would run before him was because of who he was. And who he was was directly owed to his father. His betrayal didn't come overnight. He got his feelings hurt because his dad wouldn't pay him any attention. His dad was a poor father, didn't know how to deal with a murderer in his own ranks when he should have been stoned to death. He put him in a city of refuge. He got his feelings hurt and decided to burn the kingdom down. We know where the whole story goes. He leads a coup to overthrow his dad. He may have honestly had the potential to be David's replacement. He may have been the heir apparent. But he forfeited it all when he tried to steal the king. I think the Lord used it to benefit David because when Absalom arose, all those that were traitorous within David's kingdom flocked to him anyway. And David got to see very quickly who was already on the border. Now, I want you to know that as a church family, that anytime we have somebody that kind of turns or somebody comes in from the outside that is of an unclean idea, attitude, or spirit, you will be able to tell very quickly what's in you by how you respond to them. Like attracts like. If you find yourself fellowshipping with gossips and insurrectionists, it's because you have some in you. If you get around somebody that's really subtly undermining the church family or saying, here's the one thing that really irks me when they talk about you guys, because as much as I'll pound on you and preach on you, I'm very zealous of you. I brag on you everywhere we go, and we defend you. But what irks me is when I hear some of you say, well, you know, pastor, the rest of the church is just so full of fear. Or, you know, everybody here is just so insecure. And anytime I hear that, because I hear it from time to time, I know somebody's listening to a familiar spirit, and typically that person doesn't fellowship with the rest of the body. So they're kind of like a skin tag on the armpit of the body. <laughs> Disgusting, isn't it? And so are you when you yield to that spirit. You know, pastor, they're all afraid of you. You know, pastor, they, they don't really love God like I do. I hear this kind of stuff from time to time. So... What will happen is if, if that's in you, you'll gravitate towards that person, and the two of you will become an army of dose. An army of dose is so mighty, except you're neither Jonathan nor the armor bearer. You don't stand a chance against the Philistine garrison. So you got to be careful. Years ago, some of you remember we had a family come from California. They thought they were the bee's knees. And the Lord hid from me their ulterior motive, though I did pick up on it one time at Chili's, and I said, they said, well, we want to come and help you. They said, the dad said, it's not like I'm going to try to steal your church from you. Like, who shares that with the pastor over lunch? And I looked at him, I said, you assume, sir, I would let you. And I don't know where that came from, it just came out of my mouth. I said, but here's what you do. If you move here, I'm going to put you through all the basic, because I got to prove you, because I don't know you. And I got to see if you're good enough to be at my church. 
I don't think he liked that. He, he had a little man syndrome. <laughs> and they came and uh, they did want to steal the church. They did, they did think they could do things better. And uh, the church quickly moved away from them because the church could tell they smell funny spiritually. They think differently spiritually. And it was really cool to watch the family move away from Korah. Except for one family who was drawn to Korah. And when everything fell apart and that family left and then the second family left about a month later and the only reason they were hanging out for a month was because their kids were slated to go on a mission trip. It's the only reason they were still hanging out because the kids were slated to go on the mission trip and I had to tell the family, I'm sorry, I can't let you go on the mission trip because I know you're gossiping about me, slandering me, and I really don't want you kids to go down to Honduras, the murder capital of the world, in slander because you may get murdered. So it's probably better that you just not go at all. When I said that, they called me a liar, a coward, spineless. The teenagers rebuked me in my pulpit, told me I was a hypocrite, a liar, a coward, blah, 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 blah. So go. Don't let the door hit you where the good Lord splits you. <laughs> Ask me where those kids grew up to go. Sin. One of them on the way out the door, she was living with her bisexual boyfriend, and the mom and dad were at their wits end because their oldest daughter was living with a bisexual boyfriend. They said, I don't know why they departed us. I said, I can tell you because the depart spirit's on you, and it's going to get on your Canaan. So when it all fell apart, I said, Lord, why was I so blind to this? I should be more spiritual to this. I should be more discerning to this. And the Lord, we were on the man trip. We came back. I'd been praying, Lord, this all fell apart. I should have seen this. I want to protect my sheep better. And the Lord said to me, he said, if I'd have revealed to you their motive, you'd have preached them out in the first service. And I said, yes, yes, I would have. And he said, and I didn't want that. And he said, your church was the last opportunity they had. Never heard anything like that. He said, I, I brought them here to prove them, and you were the last chance I was giving them. And he said, and then the Lord showed me, he said, and if they had not come showing me that family, then they showing me the other family would not have been exposed. And he showed me that that family as a tree of knowledge of good and evil, giving the reprobate betrayers in my church somebody to gravitate toward. In chemistry, do you know what a chelating agent is? It's Latin for the claw. Chelating agent stuff you remember from mineralogy. A chelating agent is something you put in a, in a flocculation, a chemical that grabs a hold of other chemicals and they coagulate. Until then, they just stay in suspension or solution. So you drop a chelating agent in there and it causes everything to precipitate out. Some Christians come through churches. They're of the devil. God permits it to act as a chelating agent to grab all the trash out of your church and just go out with it. You can put chelating agents in your blood to draw metals out to purify you. It's fun. I think it's spelled C-H-E-L-A-T-E, -E, chelating. Or it's spelled with a K. Pretty sure it's C-H. Whatever. doesn't matter. Hadn't looked at that in, since 96. Don't be a chelating agent. Actually, please do. I should say don't be pulled by the chelating agent. So we know the end of Absalom's story. He's able to draw David's traitors to him. One of them being Ahithophel. Ahithophel was a traitor. Ahithophel was his wisest advisor, but Ahithophel was Bathsheba's grandfather. And we know that Ahithophel was bitter that David had had an affair with his granddaughter and embarrassed the family. So Ahithophel was waiting for an opportunity to betray David. In the end, Absalom fails at his coup and Joab 
kills him. We know the story. He's riding on his little donkey. What kind of moron is a king marches around on a little jackass? It's almost fitting, like a little donkey. And he gets his hair caught up under a terebinth tree. It's what the Bible says. Those of you that read it. <laughs> and there he is left, caught up by his hair, stuck, the Bible says, between heaven and earth, like a little princess pinata. And as it were, God had Joab come along, Joab and his men. Now, David had given the, the soldiers, the mighty men of valor, don't touch my boy. And Joab says, look at there. And everybody's like, Joab, you know what David said. And Joab, being the faithful servant, says, do you realize what we're dealing with here, men? Well, I don't care what David says. This man is a traitor to our king. He split the kingdom. He's worthy of death, and we're going to give it to him. And they just began to throw javelins at him. And they killed him. And then they buried him in a place where David couldn't find his body. And then David gets rebuked by Joab for mourning over Absalom. It says, how dare you mourn after your traitor when these men have lived and died for you? David was not a good father. He was a perverse judge of character when it came to his kids. But you see that. What's the end of that? Death. Traitor. He, he could have been a prince the rest of his life, but he betrayed him. Look at, go to 1 Kings. Let's look at this Third, uh, third example, First Kings, chapter, First Kings, chapter one. The third example we want to look at tonight. I'm going to try to wrap it up here in the next fifteen. Though I have two more men, I may just do one after this one. This one is going to boggle your mind. First Kings, chapter one. The third example of the spirit of abandonment and betrayal coming upon a person is Joab also. David's chief. David's mighty chief. He's never listed among the 30 mighty men of valor, interestingly enough, but he was chief. He took the, the stronghold of Jabus and became David's chief over the armies, but he, he uh, was zealous for David. He was David's nephew. But we have an issue here. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. Then Adonijah, this is one of David's sons, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. This is at the end of David's life. Verses 1 through 4 talk about how old David was. I will be king. And he prepared himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. We've read that before. How do you think that went for your half-brother, Adonijah? Don't you remember the princess pinata? I think I'd be putting 50 men away and saying, show me what to scrub, dad. Show me where to work, dad. Because if you don't kill me, Joab will. <laughs> now look at verse 6, because this shows us how bad David was as his dad. And his father, if you read it in the King James, or outside the King James, it says his father had never disciplined him at any time, saying, why are you acting this way? This verse tells us very clearly David never disciplined his boys. If you want to read it in another translation, let me pull it up. Uh, let's see. Um, give me a second here. 1 Kings 
chapter 1. I'll read it to you. NIV, verse 6 says, His father had never rebuked him by asking, Why do you behave as you do? David was a horrible dad. Why does this kid think he can take the throne? Because he's never been told no. And he was also a very goodly man, or that is, a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. So it kind of runs in that family. This is Absalom's kid brother. Verse 7, and he conferred with Joab. Uh Uh-oh. That's the same Joab we just bragged about. The son of Zeruiah, that's David's sister. And with Abiathar, the priest, and they, following Adonijah, helped him. David is still alive, but he's getting old. And he says, I'm king now. And he talks to uh, Abiathar, Abiathar, and uh, Joab, and they help him. Verse 8, but Zadok the priest and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimei and Rei and the mighty men which belonged to David were not with Adonijah. So he tells us he splits the priesthood. One priest goes with Adonijah, one priest goes with David. The mighty men of valor stick with David. And Benaiah, it says specifically, stays with David. Why is that? Why didn't he ask him to come join him? Well, Benaiah was the captain of the mercenaries. When you study the Hebrew, it says, and he was chief over the mercenaries. It's pretty cool to think David had a team of men that just went out and assassinated people. I don't think you want to risk him not being happy with your invitation on the spot, so you just don't even ask him altogether. And Adonijah slew sheep and oxen. And fat cattle by the stone of Zoheleth, which is by Enrogel, and called all his brethren, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah, and the mighty men, and Solomon his brother, he called not. So he draws a line in the sand. But the horrible thing is Joab goes with him. The spirit of betrayal, the spirit of departure. But let me ask you, why is Joab anything? Why has he got anything good about him? Because of David. He was drawn to David in the cave of Adullam. He became who he was because of David. He owes everything to David. And now at the end of his life, he's going to betray David. He's going to change horses at the end of the race. And you think this is going to go well for you. If you'll look at chapter 2, they go to Bathsheba. They say, you haven't heard, but Adonijah's claimed the throne Solomon's supposed to have the throne. Quickly go to David, tell him what's happening. And so David quickly coronates his son Solomon to be king. And they have the priesthood to do it. They have a prophet to do it. So it's legitimate because it's the king's approval. With Adonijah, you didn't have the king's approval, though you had a false prophet and a false priest. You got to have prophet, priest, and king there to make it official. So we're missing one third of the trifecta. So David anoints his son. But look at 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 5. This is David talking to Solomon. Actually, verse 4. The Lord, this is David talking to his son. The Lord may continue his word, which he spake concerning, um, concerning me, saying, If your children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart, with all their soul, there shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me. 
and what he did to the two captains of the hosts of Israel, and unto Abner, the son of Ner, and unto Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he slew and shed the blood of war in peace and put the blood of war upon his girdle that was about his loins and in his shoes that were on his feet. Do therefore according to your wisdom and let not his gray head go down to the grave in peace. One of King David's last statements is, get me vengeance on Joab. Don't let him die peacefully. Now think about that as a reward for a man who was so faithful to David for almost 40 years. But almost 40 years isn't 40 years. He didn't kind of like just peter out and just kind of disappear into his old age. He's active and strong, and he portrays David in the very end, which completely undermines all the great things he did for David. He dies a traitor. So when Solomon becomes king, Solomon turns to his new commander-in-chief, Benaiah, the captain of the mercenaries, and says, go kill Joab. Joab flees to the tabernacle at Shiloh and grabs a hold of the horns of the brazen altar because you couldn't die there. To grab a hold of the horns is to beg for mercy. You're acknowledging, I need my sins atoned for. And, and uh, Benaiah says, come away from there. I'm to kill you. And Benaiah, uh, Joab says, nope, I won't do it. I'm not leaving here. So Benai goes back to Solomon and says, he won't leave the tabernacle. And Solomon says, go kill him there anyway. And young Solomon, that's probably a 14 or 15-year-old prince, one of his first commandments is, my daddy said, get vengeance on the traitor. Go get vengeance on the traitor. And they murder the guy in the tabernacle because that's the reward of a traitor. I'm thankful we live under a little bit of mercy and grace. As a final example, we could talk about the disciples of John chapter 6. They were with Jesus six chapters for the most part. And one message on communion through them. They were so blessed for a couple of chapters, so prospered. This is John chapter 6, verse 60, on down to the end of the chapter. Had their dead raised, had meals fed, healings. They're doing really good. They really love this Jesus of Nazareth. He's a great Messiah or great rabbi. We're pretty sure he might be the Messiah. And he gives them one sermon and they quit over one sermon. And they even say, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? And then Jesus quickly jumps in to give them the interpretation. Hey, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit that quickeneth. Jesus is trying to give them the interpretation. Realizes this is, you guys aren't taking it like it needs to be taken. And they won't listen. And they leave the Lord. And it says, and they walked with him no more. They didn't even stop to say, could you, could you teach that from a different perspective? This, this is a hard saying. We quit. That's an ouchy sermon. I disagree. How about, could, could we go sit by the fireside and you say that again a different way? Because this whole flesh and blood thing, huh? It's kind of weird. We feel like this may get really out of hand in about 400 years. <laughs> just looking long term, Lord. I mean, just, just looking long term. This could really get weird. <laughs> they won't even stick around to listen. They get offended and they leave. The terrifying thing is that it says they walked with him no more. So did they go to hell? I don't know. Did they repent at Pentecost or thereafter? I don't know. But John says, 
And he's writing his gospel from about the 95th year AD. So 60 years after all this transpired, he's saying they didn't walk anymore. One sermon turned disciples against Christ. One misunderstood sermon. Now, I'm not Jesus, so I make mistakes. But if his sermons are misunderstood, it doesn't bother me when mine are. But think about the, 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 the betrayal there, the departure. And the Lord, six chapters into John, and there's only 21 chapters, he has to reboot his ministry with 12. You could look at Demas, who at one point was called the fellow laborer of Paul. But little by little, he began to love the world, and he departed Paul at the end of Paul's life. Paul said at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, I'm ready to depart. My time is at hand. Come and visit me. Bring me the parchments. Bring me my cloak. But he also said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica. That's a traitor. Didn't happen overnight. He's quoted in Colossians. He's quoted in Philemon, Philemon. He's quoted, and he's called a fellow laborer with Paul. He was in the ministry with Paul, and something began to click, 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 because it doesn't ever happen overnight. You begin to listen to a voice, that spirit of departure that begins to get you questioning things you used to not even care about, that you used to not even see. But again, I ask, do you ever turn that, that hypercritical spirit on yourself? And then this is where we might accurately apply Matthew 7 and say, judge not lest you be judged. And how about you get the two by four out of your own face so you can better see my splinters? I've told a couple folks over the years, your lifestyle doesn't qualify you to disagree with me. I'm like, <laughs> bless people's hearts, but you can't win arguments with them. They're addicted to lunacy. So let me tell you a story that I just experienced this week. I've shared some of this with you in private. You don't have to go repeat it, though. In private, I gave you the name. A friend of mine has a, had a church. Actually, he still has a church. And he had an intern, a disciple with him for a long time, a very faithful young man, Helped him start a church, helped him build a church, became a family member by adoption to my friend and his wife and their kids, became like an uncle. The church was prospering. And then all of a sudden, the disciple, this spirit began to minister to him. I think part of it, obviously some of it was sin, the enticement of sin, but the, the other interesting aspect that I see in this equation was I, I get this sense. I need to clarify it. So let me just put a little asterisk there that says this may not be 100% it, but you'll see the, the probability. I believe he was lured by his dream. He always had a dream to do commercial art. And as long as he was serving his pastor, he was serving his pastor. And you can't really do commercial art serving your pastor. And so uh, I was there when he began to tear his relationship from my pastor friend 
and there was a lot of emotions and a lot of hurt, and things got really nasty on the traitor's part. They never, when they betray, you don't betray politely because you got a devil. You don't betray sweetly because if you betray sweetly, it's not betrayal. It's, I think God's calling us off. I don't know if you agree with it or not, Pastor, but could you at least pray for us? We want to go try this out. Hey, leave right and come back right. They got nasty. There was cussing, accusations, slander, not on my pastor friend's part, on the disciples' part. So he fell into some sexual sin, terminated all of his Christian friendships, and then he just disappeared into oblivion. And then last Tuesday, I was on an airplane with him. Hadn't seen him in almost 10 or 11 years. Actually, I was in TSA pre-check with him. Not pre-check, but TSA check. And I'm standing behind him. Of course, he's sleeved out now, both arms, septum ring, thigh tattoos. Love the kid. He's not a kid now, but love him. And I think, man, that looks like my friend's buddy. That looks like my friend's disciple. What's he doing in Nashville? Is it him? Nah, it can't be him. What are the odds? Can't be him. What are the odds? So I don't think anything of it that I get on the airplane for Detroit. The kid was from Michigan. He's on the airplane to Detroit. I think it's got to be him. Got to be him. And so I determine I'm on the front of the airplane. I get off first. I said, I'm going to ask the guy. And, and the, the thing that, that has struck my heart several times, I got this mustache now. One of my own friends didn't even recognize me in town yesterday. It's the power of the stash. I had my ball cap on pulled low, had a hoodie on, had glasses on. So I don't look like anybody. I mean, that you would remember. Because when he knew me, I had a shaved head and a goatee. Because I try to, you know, like you ladies, you change your hair every two weeks, a hair color, short perm, blonde, highlights, dark, you know, strips of purple, turquoise, whatever. Guys just, what do we get to do? We look the same in all of our pictures, unless we grow a mullet. <laughs> so I, I'm waiting for him, I get off the airplane, and I said, hey, man, hey. And he, he looks at me. I said, you look like somebody I used to know. And I want to know if that's him. He said, Pastor Chris McMichael. And I said, it is you. Yeah. Just as sweet as I remember him, just as tender-hearted. Weird rings on every finger. I, I can pinpoint the kid. I love the kid. I invited him to come here. He might even be streaming right now. I said, tell me your name again, because I've forgotten it, because it's been 10 or 11 years. He told me, I said, yeah, what are you doing? Well, I'm in Nashville now. I'm doing commercial art. I said, are you in church? No, not in church. Well, I knew that. You can look at him and tell. But his heart was so tender and so gentle. And I said, well, man, we talked for probably five minutes. He said, are you still in Cookville? I said, I am. He said, how's Miss Manda? She's doing great. I said, I've got kids now. He said, I didn't know you had kids. So I showed him pictures of the kids. So we kind of went our way. I got on his website and saw his commercial art portfolio. And he has done commercial art for people you know in the music industry. The biggest and the most famous worship leaders. But in order to chase his dream and fulfill it, he had to betray his pastor. And it would appear from his portfolio the devil has made him very successful. 
He just had to listen to a voice. Voices will make you successful until they kill you. And so this is this, not this exact message, but the heart of this is something Dr. Barclay ministered last Wednesday to warn us of that spirit of departure that's coming upon people. We're dealing with the great falling away. You can't depart your church without first departing Jesus. You can't depart your spouse without first departing Jesus. You can't depart good Christian friendships without first departing Jesus. Because if you walk with him, he's not going to let you quit anybody. So how do you depart Jesus? He's your side hustle. How do you depart your church? Jesus is your side hustle. How do you depart your wife or your husband? Jesus is your side hustle. You got all the lingo? This kid knows all the lingo. This kid was good at what he did. He knows doctrine. He remembers me, church. He knows it all, but he's not living a bit of it. And the world is all over the kid. Neck deep. When, you got, when you're a dude and you got thigh tattoos, not like Maori tribal, you know, from booty crack down to the knees, try, you know, thigh tattoos. I'm talking about little cute Pinterest ones. And you're wearing shorts short enough to show them off. You're traitored and betrayal against the Lord and your station in life has yet to cost you what it's about to. So we, I'm praying for him. My wife and I have been praying for him, and I want him to come to church. I want to, see, I want to restore the guy. I told pastor, because Dr. Barclay knows him, he said, you know, son, that may be God's last chance for that young man. I said, what are the odds I would be behind him at security? Hadn't seen him in 11 years. Six o'clock flight in the morning. And he knew exactly who I was. Incognito. Well, I don't even have to do that. It's still there. So the moral of the story is, quit flirting with Jesus. Quit letting him be your side hustle, your side dish. Make him your all in all. Be convinced in your heart where you're called. I might say, just remind yourself who you're married to and reaffirm, that's my wife. Something Pastor Caleb said when he preached for us on vacation, it was probably one of the most powerful things I've heard in a long time. He taught us, because we were streaming it from the beach, you got to say out loud, this is my church. That is my pastor. This is where I'm called. We did it. That Dr. Barclay is my pastor. Righteous Preachers Network is my affiliation. That's where I'm called. I just had to do it for my own self. Let the devil, the demon realm know. I don't, I'm not confused about where I'm called. And to say it made me feel stronger on the inside. And I did it again. My wife said, we need to do it again. So we did it again. Yeah. And honestly, even just saying that out loud, I went up to this conference. It's one of the best conferences I've been at a long time, probably because I just reaffirmed, that's my pastor, that's my company, it has what I need, and I'm going to get it. Yeah. I'm also going to give a lot too, but I'm going to get it. <laughs> Some of you, you, you live kind of on the border, and that's your, your doing, uh, but it's because Jesus is your side hustle. You're not committed to him 100%. You're committed to yourself. And so you're not really committed to the church God's called you to. And because of that, we can't promote you or use you. You just kind of, 
You're a blessing. We'll use you. But you're not like you could be. So how many more decades will go by before you just run out of time? So when you know where you're called, you just screw that bulb in. If you want to, super glue it. It'll still have enough connectivity to light that thing up. And only God will be able to change the bulb. Or Brother Chad won. Because he's good at it. <laughs> Amen?